1: Welcome to Global Change Agents with me, Liana Brinded, the Digest Edition, a podcast brought to you by Yahoo Finance UK. You can watch a full version of this interview by heading over to yahoo.co.uk forward slash change agents. Joining me today is Jan Gooding, chair of LGBT rights charity Stonewall and separately audience measurement body PAMCO. She's also the president of the Market Research Society we'll discuss Jan's storied portfolio career. She'll share her tips for challenging the status quo and rising to the top. And we'll discover the achievements Jan is still looking to tick off the list. Jan, welcome to the show. Thank you. With all these interviews, we do like to start at the beginning. So you grew up in the Bahamas. Tell us a bit about your childhood and how that shaped you
0: to the person you are today. Well, of course, when you're a child, you don't realise how extraordinary your childhood is. My parents moved to the Bahamas when I was six months old uh, and I went to school there actually until I was 12, which people often find quite surprising. Uh, I, and I think the way that looking back on it influenced me and was so important was because I I was brought up in a sunny place with tremendous freedom. You know, I ran around in bare feet most of the time and shorts. I didn't know what cold was. Uh, It was a very light, bright, gorgeous place. But of course there are aspects of it now that I look back on with regard to the politics that were going on at the time that I was completely unaware of. So, for instance, I went to a British school and there were no black children in the school as a child. I just thought either they didn't want to go there or they couldn't afford it. And I only discovered when I got older that actually they had been excluded and I remember being rather shocked. I couldn't believe that my parents had sent me to a school where there was such a regime. And the reason I discovered it was because when I was about 11, the uh, black Bahamian government at that time insisted that the school be mixed. And there was a big controversy around it. And so suddenly, a very big gr- uh, group of, of local children, not expatriate children, arrived in the school. Uh, so interesting that I lived through that through the eyes of a child and I think it has held me in good stead through my career because it was an early lesson in I know people talk a lot about about being woke but actually I think waking up to other people's experiences in a political sense is very important and I think if you're going to have a career in marketing one presumes that's because you're curious and interested in other people which I always have been but not being complacent about the world you live in, uh, I think, is, is an important lesson. So along that journey,
1: when did you decide or how did you decide that you wanted to go into retail? Because that was the first um, step in your career, correct?
0: <laughs> I always feel rather sorry for Selfridges because I always very emphatically say how much I hated <laughs> working there. And that, but actually, they rescued me in a way. I read economics at, at Cambridge. There were not many women who did that. And most of my cohort went into banking or uh, uh, the city. And I absolutely didn't want to do that. My mother had died when I was 20. So my home in the Bahamas disappeared. My father had uh, gone remarried and gone to live in Uruguay, of all places, very far away. So I was in London, very uncertain about what I wanted to do. And I went to a careers fair and Selfridges were recruiting for their management trainee course. So, I I mean, I literally needed a job. So I took it, and I had this vague notion I wanted to work in business, whatever that meant. I didn't want to work in in the city. I wanted to be in business, and obviously retail is a big, important sector. But I'm grateful because I discovered what I loved doing, but I hated most of it. I, I was fortunate that the training allowed me to do many different things during the course of the year, you know, from putting on fashion shows to uh, pricing stockings for dogs at Christmas in the three floors underground. But I was lucky enough to be placed in their advertising department. They did their advertising in-house and they were actually disbanding it at the time. So people had the time to spend with me. And so I was very fascinated by the fact that gosh, of course, if you're going to promote yourself, you have to make a decision about who is your competition, how are you positioning yourself, and your advertising is your way of attracting people uh, to, to come to the store. And I found I was much more interested in that kind of uh, thinking process than I was standing in the middle of the China department uh, trying to talk to someone about Royal Dalton, about which I knew nothing and wasn't the least bit interested. A lot of pressure now these days seems
1: to be that you have to have a plan and especially with your career. Do you actually recommend then, especially when you start out, to not be afraid that you don't have a plan so you can learn along the way? Or do you still think that it's better to have, I suppose, a blueprint
0: to how you want your career to be? I'm privileged enough now to get invited to speak at university to to people graduating. My advice is very consistent, which is you need to have a plan A you need to get started. But I think there's a very fascinating statistic, which I always tell students, that 40% of people, of graduates, change career completely within two years. Now that's quite a heavy cost for employers because that means 40% of the people they've recruited, they've made the wrong choice. It also tells you that 40% of the graduates also made the wrong choice. So I think when you know that it's that big a proportion the one should remain calm get going with something like i did and know that there's no disgrace or shame in plan b possibly plan c i think you have to do something long enough um to really know because i think a bit like starting anything you can you can hate the start so i think you should set yourself some goals and milestones about what you are going to do and then learn as much much as you can as you go. You found your path and you joined
1: an advertising agency in 1982. Was it like the Mad Men kind of era? What were the kind of things that was happening around that time in terms of advertising and was there anything that was super jarring for you going into a completely new sector?
0: Well, I've since discovered that Ted Bates, which is where I joined, is literally the agency upon which Mad Men was based Um, which I didn't know at the time, and obviously we knew nothing about Mad Men. Uh, it, was a, it was a shock to go there. I loved, as I've described, the the whole area of thinking about strategy and advertising. So I was immensely excited about the work, and I couldn't believe I was being paid to think about brand strategy. So that was extremely thrilling. But I have to say the working culture was shocking because the misogyny was something I had not been led to expect, you know, I I had been well-educated as a woman and I did not know until I went into advertising that my gender had anything to do with anything. Um, And uh, I mean, there were strange, there were strange bits of advice, like all account people were told to have about their person 50 pounds, a corkscrew and a credit card at all times. And I think that speaks volumes around um, not just that you were at the bottom of the pile, so you were the one expected to open the bottle of wine or produce the 50 quid for the cab or the credit card for whatever that was about. But in terms of priorities, you know, I was I was amazed by that. Um, I was there to, to think about brands and their strategy and business and growth and commerce. That was what I was interested in. And I'm afraid I did have some Uh, very bad experiences uh, with, frankly, older men. I mean, you looked up, there weren't any women at the top of the organisation. I was the first woman on the board by the time I was 30 in the agency I was in at the time. And my observation was that it took me and it took other women a lot longer to get into senior positions than our male counterparts, who we were better than, and evidently (laughs) better than. I was incredibly lucky because I have had exceptional men, mentor me. So I don't want to paint this picture that um, all men are ghastly because that simply wasn't the case. There, there were absolutely men who were, who were feminists and who either stepped in or looked out for me or brought me into their team um, and uh, sponsored my progress. How did you find resilience and the ability to keep pushing through and
1: despite all that happening around you, to keep rising up like what kept you going?
0: Well as I say I was extremely interested in the work and I now say to everyone there's no such thing as meritocracy. I feel very strongly about that actually but at the time I thought there was such a thing as meritocracy so I did what I think we thought we had to do which was let our work speak for ourselves. So I worked incredibly hard, Um, I was quite serious uh, and Uh, And I suppose that was my way of coping. I wasn't I wasn't playful because if you were playful, that seemed to somehow get you into trouble and and be misunderstood. So I was quite uh, I was quite serious. And I um, I was just determined because I loved what I was doing so much that I was going to do well. And I always said I couldn't say I'm going to be The managing director like that woman over there because they weren't there but what I always said was I'm going to go as far as I can go that was how I expressed it so so there was no lack of ambition I didn't see why I couldn't uh, get to the top as it were in the end I was the only board director who didn't have a contribution made to my pension which all the other board directors had and I think that was because none of their wives worked and there was this assumption that the husband's pension was the one that provided. And I literally, I, I think it was unconscious or paternalistic. I mean, I try and be generous and give the benefit of the doubt as to, as to the times. But why, why was I the only board director who didn't have the company contribute to my pension as the others did? I didn't even know that that was part of someone's package i don 't know what's been said about me behind my back, but I do know the feedback that people have felt able to give me uh, to my face, which has been incredibly sexist, everything from you know being schoolmarmish to being an ice queen i've been described in feedback uh, i've even been described as a as a as deviant you know um, so that's that's you've just got to sort of know that it, know that it isn't true and you've got to have good friends and you've got to have good colleagues who You can say, you know, you'll never believe what someone's just said to me and they go, well, that's just ridiculous. So surrounding yourself with people who respect and believe in you, I think, is incredibly important. We all need that. And I think on on our worth and our value, what I say to people is talk about the money and be rational about it. So the way in which I got pay rises was I literally worked out my worth. So I knew that I accounted for 40%. I was running 40% of the agency's revenue. And I was able to say that. So I think we need to be a bit commercial about demonstrating what our value is, because I think people don't always... Uh, understand it. Um, obviously, pride is an
1: incredible, incredible worldwide activation of getting people involved for LGBTQ rights. But there has been, over the last, you know, couple of years, I would say, while it's fantastic, so many corporates are getting involved. There has been talk about like it's um, rainbow washing. Um, so having that visibility, but are the corporates really participating and acting on where they? put their sponsorship money and things like that how would you respond to that
0: where I get disquieted by some of what goes on and I think it's very unfair that corporates are singled out on we you know we need corporates employ a lot of people and corporates have a lot of customers so we absolutely want corporates at pride and it's not just about having their money it's about having their allyship if I can put it that way you know if Barclays are gonna come and say, we, we want to be part of um, Pride. That, that's really meaningful when you think about where Pride began. But, but I get concerned when it's just seen as a party. It's not a party, it's really political. And every time uh, we march in London, you're marching with people from all over the world who can't march. You're marching with people where it is still a criminal offence to be gay. You're marching with people who've who've come to London and if they went back and it was discovered that they were gay they would be stoned to death. So what sits underneath and at the heart of it is still political and there is still pain and literally death and fear uh, at the heart of it. So I think what we have to get right is this delicate balance between Brands absolutely being there and corporates and citizens showing that we celebrate everybody being who they are. And, and, and it is a day of, of people being out when there were times when they were not able to be. The first prides only happened in Soho and people were spat at and had things thrown at them. You know, we, we forget. So there's a very important part of visibly showing we are here and absolutely a celebration of who we are but there is this underlying uh, political aspect and i think that's when people get troubled if they think that anyone's participation not just a corporate anyone anyone who just thinks let's go and have fun this saturday afternoon cuz cuz pride's on without thinking any more than that you know we actually need people to help change the attitudes in society there is still homophobia there is still biphobia, there is absolutely, the transphobia at the moment is almost beggar's belief. And the further away um, you get from, you know, the party time in the street, people are really suffering. You know, two women were beaten up on a bus in London a couple of months ago. So there's this other thing about, oh, it's it's rural now, We, we need to help the smaller communities. Homophobia, I'm afraid, and transphobia is alive and well right in our streets you know i think twice about holding hands or showing affection which i find really odd because i was married for 16 years it never occurred to me to to be undemonstrative to my husband um, but i sometimes think about it when uh, when i'm with my partner so we must what we ask of brands and of corporates is please come and you're absolutely welcome and you're not you're not just wanted for your money you're wanted because we need your allyship, it makes us feel safer knowing that big companies are on our side. But please be thoughtful about what sits behind this and what are you really doing for the LGBT people who work in your organisation, so that's one thing. So if there's a big gap between turning up at Pride and the real experience of your workforce, that's a big problem And what are you doing to think about your customers? And finally, how can you use your strength and your power, which companies have, to help us change the situation in other parts of the world where people are really suffering and being killed? And, you know, in Russia, put in concentration camps. It's very frightening.
1: Yourself and Stonewall have done so much to bring about also that nuances to every situation, including Black Pride, which, you know, years ago hadn't happened. So I think that's fantastic to delve deeper and get more intersectional in terms of that diversity inclusion. It's even tougher for people of colour who are gay. Do you feel that society or businesses or everyone is
0: recognising that? This is the great, huge frontier, isn't it? I think the record of... um, of this country on BAME is a disgrace per se. Never mind in in the additional complexities of being uh, uh, blame and LGBT, which, as we know, it's sort of layer and layer of of disadvantage and, and discrimination. It's like you know, which one are you going to pick? Um, I, I the first thing to say is that we at Stonewall felt we also had a lot to learn. So even Uh, with being trans inclusive we've had to have a lot of education of ourselves including the board including me Uh, the same uh, with BAME every member of the Stonewall board uh, was given a copy of why I'm no longer talking to white people about race so I think the first thing I would like to say as the chair of Stonewall is that that one approaches this with the due humility to our own part in not having paid enough attention to this. And for me, as Stonewall goes forward, our skill and expertise and eloquence on the subject of intersectionality is where I hope we will massively improve because it's not enough to have good intentions or to mean well. You've actually got to be skilled enough uh, to engage in it. So I was incredibly pleased and proud uh, when I sat in a room with Lady Phil at the start of this year and we agreed, you know, a new partnership with ourselves and UK Black Pride and importantly it is a partnership of mutual respect where we are going to learn as much about it, uh, about the the progress of Black Pride to get it more uh, national, less one single event, all the ambition that Black Pride have to to spread and have greater impact Um, and there's, just, there's a whole programme of work that we need to develop in the coming years in this area.
1: Thanks for listening to Global Change Agents with me, Liana Brinded, produced by Yahoo Finance UK. A full version of this interview can be found at yahoo.co.uk forward slash changeagents. And for more information, go to uk.finance.yahoo.com.